0: David is one of the most compelling and loved characters in the Old Testament. In this series, we will look at the highs and lows of the shepherd boy who became king. He's both an example of faith and a cautionary tale about human brokenness. Ultimately, his life is a foreshadow of someone greater. In David, we see glimpses of what is to come. This series is about seeing Jesus through David so that we might see the King of Kings and true shepherd even more clearly.
1: Ah, found it. Good morning. (laughs) Uh, Welcome. Um, It's very nice to have you with us. Uh, My name's Ed, I'm married to Hannah. Um, uh, We lead the church here together. For those of you who don't know us, uh, you're very welcome. Uh, As we always say, you're here on your own terms. You can check us out for as long or as little time as you'd like. Uh, Hannah is watching uh, one of our daughters play soccer. Uh, they're currently losing. <laughs> Pray harder. Uh, um, anyway, she, she may be back in a moment or two. Um, we're starting a new series this week. Uh, we're going to run for a number of weeks, uh, kind of doing a relatively deep-ish dive into uh, the books of First and Second Samuel uh, in the Old Testament. These are two history books. Um, And these are often known as the sort of books of David. Uh, They're about his journey from going from this humble shepherd boy to the great king of Israel. And uh, during this series, we're going to be ostensibly looking mainly at uh, David. Um, However, these two books aren't just David's story. They're also uh, the story of Saul, his predecessor as king, Samuel, Uh, the names of the books, Uh, the prophet who anoints both Saul and uh, David, and also Hannah, Samuel's mother, whom we are going to be looking at this morning. Uh, And in fact, all four of these characters are actually really central to the narrative. It's difficult to say at any point who is the kind of primary, primary character. Is it Luke? Is it Vader? Is it Yoda? Or is it Leia? It's difficult to tell from time to time probably each at different points. Anyway, the action in First and Second Samuel is clustered around the year 1000 BC. So it's about a thousand years before Jesus and a thousand years after Abraham, the father of Israel, has been spoken to by God and chosen as the father of God's people. Now, whenever we read The history of israel we need to realize that first and foremost these histories are actually told as stories our hebrew ancestors were magnificent storytellers and story throughout the bible is used as the main means actually of preaching oh sorry of bringing god's uh word to his people jesus as we know taught primarily through stories it wasn't with doctrine or with these are the things you should believe, but here is a story about someone, and this is what the kingdom is like. Because stories invite us in to participate with them. A good story will enable us to feel the emotions, to get caught up in the action, to feel like we are with the people who are there. Doors are opened to us, and we see the world, people, ourselves, and especially God, all the more profoundly when a story is well told and it's true if you watch Succession, which you should, obviously, um, apart from all the bad language and terrible people. Uh, but if you watch Succession, I, I, this is no spoiler, but in a couple of weeks ago, there was this fight between Tom and Shiv, who are married and then separated and divorced, and you're not quite sure where they are, at. and there's this fight on a Manhattan balcony whilst a party is playing out. And whether you've ever fought with someone you love And especially if you have fought with someone you love, watching it was one of those moments where you are just brought into it and you're going, I totally understand why you're feeling like this. And I also totally understand why you're feeling like this and and you're siding with one and the other and it, going, oh, isn't it painful what we can do to each other and how people can be so broken and put their brokenness on other people. And you're right there in it because this is the power of story. But First and 2 Samuel are not just story. This is no piece of fiction. It's written as history. These things really happened. No other surrounding nation cared that much actually about history at all. The Egyptians and the Mesopotamians and the Babylonians, they were all far more interested in gazing at the stars and fixating on the movements of the sun and the moon. They were interested in what might happen next. The Hebrews, though, Whilst they were thoroughly invested in the future, they did so because they were particularly interested in what had already happened. You see, every other nation had this circular view of time. We're just going round and round and round in a loop. We're interested in what might happen next. Israel was completely unique in that it had a linear view of history. And the reason it had a linear view of history, unlike any other nation, was because they could point to moments in their history and say, that happened and it never happened before and it hasn't happened since. God did something. He released us from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He brought us to the promised land. These things have happened and we remember them because they show us that God is involved. And so we are deeply interested in what might happen in the future because primarily of what has already happened in our past god has spoken he's chosen us and he said that he will make a covenant with us and this is the primary point about these histories and particularly first and second samuel god is the subject of these stories he is the subject he is not the object they are not about god They are stories of God doing things, speaking, caring, defending, listening, these sorts of things, which primarily means that these stories aren't actually about you and me. They're not about us. They are not little moral tales where we're supposed to get the the kind of um, uh, the meaning at the end and go, okay, I'll apply that to my life and then life will go well for me. That's not how these work at all. They are saying, God did this. See what God can do. It's a depiction in history of the true God being all-benevolent and all-powerful and interacting with broken humanity. These stories show us what they are like, what he is like, and that should be our focus, listening to this. What is God doing? What is he doing? Ultimately, they show that God has not given up on his people no matter how godlessly they behave. Indeed, throughout the narrative, there is still this undercurrent of hope. Not just for God to anoint a king, but for God to anoint the king, the anointed one, the Messiah. What becomes clear is the king is not actually David. The book ends, in fact, with David's last words. He's an old man giving his power over to new people. And so it ends by saying, well, he was great, but he wasn't the one. It ends by looking forward, and the future is untold. But this is a book of messiahs looking for the messiah. And as Christians, therefore, we can see Jesus on every page. So a little bit of background. We've had Abraham, God's chosen um, uh, father of his people, Uh, we've had Moses, we've had uh, escape from Egypt, we've had the promised land, and then um, we've had the judges. So uh, this new people in Canaan need to be ruled, or they need someone to tell them what to do, and yet, despite a couple of judges being okay, in general, it's a complete disaster. Everyone is ha- unhappy, there's lawlessness, the nation is in disarray. And the final line of the book of Judges, which actually in the Hebrew Bible is the book that precedes First and Second Samuel, the book of Wraith comes later, it says this, In th- those days there was no king, and all the people did right what was right in their own eyes. It was every person for themselves. It was dog-eat-dog, it was the survival of the fittest, it was anarchy, it wasn't a society. And it certainly wasn't God's people living at peace with one another and with the world and being a blessing to the nations as they were promised to be. And so Judges ends really with no, no hope. This is all gone terribly. And it's into this void, the void of leadership, the void of God's presence, the void of peace, the void of optimism about the future, that first Samuel begins, and so we're gonna hear, with quite a lot of exciting names to start with, First Samuel, uh, beginning uh, chapter one, verse one, and Amanda's gonna read it. A round of applause for Amanda. You haven't heard the names yet, you wait for the names.
0: There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zephite from the hill county of Ephraim. Whose name was Alcana, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives one was called Hannah, and the other Peninah. Peninah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hafni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her, In order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have, not been a, I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my anguish and grief. Elias answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him.
1: Thank you very much. Yes. So what's going on here? Well, Hannah's story is really about two things, or I think it's about one thing in two forms. Hannah's story is about peace. Firstly, on a personal level, how God comes to bring peace to individuals. And then secondly, in terms of how this story fits into both as a sort of introduction to First and Second Samuel, but also in, as a sort of introduction to the whole of God's uh, narrative salvation arc in the Bible, it addresses the question of how does God bring peace to the whole universe? So let me start by asking you a question as we sit here on a Sunday morning. How peaceful is your life right now? Peace in the Bible is far more than just a lack of conflict, but should we just start there at least? How much conflict and angst and worry do you currently have? So maybe how unpeaceful is your life right now? But peace in the Bible is also more than that. It's about the right functioning of everything, everything working as it should. Relationships, work, rest, societal structure, your place in it. How peaceful is your existence right now? It's a good question to ask ourselves from time to time, and it may be that any peace we are feeling is, because of circumstances, completely outside of our control, but it's good to acknowledge it. Hannah moves from one state of unrest to the other of deep, lasting peace in the course of this story, and the turning point is in verse 9, which we will come on to, but let's start where she starts. She's in deep anguish, verse 10. She is weeping bitterly. Why? Because she is childless. And this is a source of great and desperate pain for her. Now, we are in LA. We are in progressive LA. Before we judge with our 21st century progressive LA views, Hannah, you do not need children to be happy. You're a fierce, independent woman. Overcome the patriarchy. Come on, Hannah. Let us just pause for a second and consider the context. In ancient cultures like Hannah's, children were everything. To bear children and to bear a lot of children was really to be like a cultural hero. Because the more children you had, the better everything went. The better everything went for you economically, both as a family, you had more people to make more money, to uh, do more work, to look after yourself, but also for the whole of society, more shops, More trading. More crops being harvested. And also, the more children meant the more security. Both for you as a family, because they could look after you when you got old, but also for society as a whole. More children equals more people to defend and fight. If you have no um, children, generation after generation, you leave yourself susceptible to being overtaken politically or uh, militarily by surrounding nations. So the whole of Hannah's culture was saying to her, this is what we need, this is what we value, and we need it from you. And you are actually without value unless you can do it for us. And just by the way, to show this wasn't just an ancient uh, cultural expression, in my homeland of Great Britain, was great, always will be great, uh, a politician just this week, was saying that the biggest threat to British values, to British uh, um, culture, to its position in the world was the declining birth rate. And she was imploring British women, you must have children, you must, in order to save our country. Now, I'm not saying she was right or wrong, I'm just saying that these cultural ideals do persist. But the point for us is that we may live in a more pluralistic, more individualistic culture now, and by and large, that means a far greater degree of freedom. We do not have such an oppressive sense of what you must be. But that's not to say that culture's pressure is not there around every corner, is it not? Our culture telling us what you must be, how you don't quite fit up to it. It may not be the same pressure for women to have babies, but it's a million and one other things, isn't it? I thought it was um, slightly ironic, and this is not a criticism or a dig or anything, but uh, one of the Kardashians, or it might have been a Jenner, I don't know. It began with K. uh, But one of them uh, was saying that um, she doesn't want her daughter to make any of the cosmetic surgery mistakes that she has made, all of which she regrets. She wants to protect her from all of these things. And she was saying this, and this was the irony, whilst promoting uh, what is now the Kardashians, but it used to be called keeping up with the Kardashians, i.e. the message given to millions of girls throughout the world, no, you actually do really need to look like me, and be like me, and do everything like me. Quite ironic. I guess, pulled between the cultural um, norms of doing, hey, we've got to be great, but we've also got to be great parents. And we've also got to be politically engaged, and we've got to stand up to feminism. And we've got to do this, I'm not stand up for feminism, or stand up to feminism, whatever. Uh, we have to do all of this, all of this all the time. It's just as oppressive, is it not? It's not just good enough to look good. You've also got to have a career. And you've got to make huge amounts of money. And actually, come to think of it, you probably do have to have lots of kids and be a perfect mother all the time. And of course, it's not just um, uh, one gender. Young men are the most susceptible to suicide in pretty much every Western country, and particularly this one. Which surely must at least be in part attributable to a sense of not being good enough, or not being rich enough, or not being successful enough, or whatever else in cultures eyes, Your age, your race, your ethnicity, your sexuality, all cultural ideas can be extremely oppressive to people. Don't you feel the weight of it from time to time? And of course, to make matters worse, every culture has its fair share of Pinenna's, Hannah's rival, pointing out, either explicitly or implicitly, just by being there with children, that she is a failure. You are a failure because you have not been as good as me. Ha, 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 ha. I am going to provoke you. Years and years of provoking. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none, verse 2. And Peninnah, Hannah's rival, kept provoking Hannah in order to irritate her, verse 6. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. All of it makes Hannah miserable. So what does she do? Well, it's interesting that amidst Peninnah's goading, there is this quite lovely, tender little speech from Elkanah, Hannah's husband. Verse eight. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, "Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons?" Isn't he sweet? So kind. Because what he's implying is, here is in Hannah, the woman he actually loves. He gives her twice as much meat. He says to her, you're the one that I care about. She's his favorite. He's basically saying to her, I don't care about the sons. The other wife, Peninnah, she's good for sons, but you, you're the one that I actually want to spend time with. You're more important to me than all the children in the world. What a guy. I need to tread carefully here, but... Have you ever been with someone you really love? And you can see they're upset. And because they're upset, it also upsets you, and you want to make it better. Have you ever done that? And so what you want to do is to take them up out of their upsetness, and you say what are ostensibly very nice things to them. But you say them, and it seems to make everything worse, and you're not quite sure why. I think that's what's going on here Elkanah don't be sad I love you don't worry about the children I love you and the reaction is verse 9 which as I said is this turning point in the story once they'd finished eating and, and drink, eating and drinking Hannah stood up now that sounds just like a small detail but she stood up but actually, uh, the Hebrew meaning actually is, is, uh, is much more than she just stood up. Rather, in Hebrew, it's like shorthand for Hannah taking control. She's saying, right, this is the end of it. This is, I'm finishing with you lot. She said, enough is enough. It means I'm stopping being passive. And I'm going to take the reins here which is, I guess, an idiom for us. If if you don't speak English and someone said, you're going to take the reins or you're going to draw a line in the sand or you're going to put your foot down, not literally doing anything of those things, but it's actually what's going on here. And when Hannah stood up, it means this is the end. I am taking back control. I am going to be in charge from here on in. Because what Hannah does here is she rejects other people's ideas for her life. On the one hand, she is not going to be burdened anymore by cultural expectations as embodied by Pinema. But also, she's not just going to swap that cultural expectation for someone else's expectation of who she is, namely her husband, that it doesn't matter, at least I love you, and that's what matters. How it lands on Hannah, Elkanah, I think, trying to be nice, is this okay, you can't identify by being a mother, but what if your value was just being my wife? Wouldn't that be lovely? Do you see where that might lead? It would probably lead to Hannah doing to Penenna exactly what Penenna has been doing to Hannah. If that was all of Hannah's identity now, Hannah wouldn't be able to help herself, but lord it over Penenna. Yeah, you've got children, but he loves me. All he loves in you is your uterus. He loves everything about me. Imagine where that would leave the family. Imagine what that would do to Hannah and Elkanah and Penenna and the children. Imagine how quickly the whole thing would break down. And so to her immense credit, Hannah rejects both Pinena and Elkanah's view of what her life is for because she knows she is worth much, much, much more than any human or cultural or worldly expectation of her. And so are you. Do you know that? Instead, she goes after God she stands up, says, this is finished now, all of this stuff. I am going to take control. And I am going to pray. Uh, there's a... It's very loud out there. <laughs> uh, there's this book, uh, which is simply called prayer by this kind of old uh, Lutheran uh, pastor from from Norway called um, Olli Halsby. And in it, he talks about how so often we think that doubt or anger or bitterness, these are like obstacles to prayer. These stop us praying. We can't, we can't, we need to sort all of that out before we approach God's throne room and actually talk to him we should never actually pray because uh, if we if we're pissed or we we're, we're unhappy but actually in this book he says no these aren't obstacles at all these are doorways these raw emotions are not the way from prayer but they are the way into prayer they are precisely what god wants to hear so are you grieving are you angry are you bitter Are you just incredibly burdened by everything of this world? That is your way into prayer. Tell him. Talk to him about it. It's what he wants to hear. Because when we do that, we actually open up the airwaves, and we might actually hear him speak. See what happens to Hannah. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you would only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. In her deep anguish, Eli thinks she's drunk. I imagine because she looked a bit drunk, because she is raging. When was the last time someone could accuse you of looking drunk when you prayed? It would be a good test, wouldn't it? Do you know who else was accused of being drunk when they prayed? The first apostles. When the Spirit was given, the Spirit poured out. They were accused of being drunk because they were so in touch with what God is doing. They'd lost all inhibition and they were just praying. Be like that when you pray. Bring it all. So, Hannah says, "Give me a son, and it'll all be great." Thanks. <laughs> Have you ever bargained with God? I think I talked about this a bit last last week. When it comes to money, I'll give all my money away. God, I promise. I'll give it all away, just as long as you promise to give me even more beforehand. <laughs> uh, the thing is, bargaining never works. Not once. Not once in the Bible, not once since. Do not bargain with God. It's so tempting. If you just do this for me, I'll do this for you. And whilst it looks like that's what Hannah is doing on first reading, it actually isn't at all. Because the efficacy of bargaining is always dependent on the outcome, obviously. If you get what you bargain for, the bargain worked, and then you're happy. If you don't, you don't, and then you're unhappy. But see what happens to Hannah after she's prayed. Verse 18. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. She has stopped being miserable. But not because she's got pregnant. She has no idea at this juncture whether she's going to get pregnant at all. In fact, the text says it was only... uh, In the course of time, or really at least a year after this fact, that she becomes pregnant. But she stops being downcast straight away. The bargain hasn't come off. All that's happened is she's prayed. And this is the point it's the process of prayer, of coming into God's presence, of meeting with God that changes her, which is why this cannot be bargaining. Instead, what I think it is, is a giving up. Hannah is giving up her longings, her rights, her desires, even her son. She's giving up all her despair and anguish, all her pain and sorrow that is completely legitimate. But she's giving it all up to the Lord. So um, the Levites were this kind of uh, priestly tribe of Hebrews. They were distinguished by not owning any assets, not drinking any alcohol, and never cutting their hair. Not that fun. They were devoted to the worship of God. But because they didn't earn and they didn't work in uh, traditional ways, they became the financial responsibility of the whole community. And this is what Hannah is saying to God. I will give him to you as a Levite. I will give him to you all the days of his life. Because what has happened is her heart has changed. She has walked away from bowing down to the lesser gods of cultural norms or the lesser god of a man's affection and love and said, I am coming before the Lord And I'm bowing down to him. And I am giving and asking for a son, not for me, but for him. And see what happens? Go in peace, says Eli. And she does, for the first time in the whole story. It's like the years and years and years of the burden of being childless. Fall off her shoulders in an instant. It's the years and years of pain and trauma are not alleviated because she has a son, but because she has met with God and He has lifted her up. It's God's problem now, and Hannah goes free. Do you see the exchange? One of the things that I think is so key to healthy spiritual life is to see that God is not part of the problem but part of the solution. Whatever you're going through. It's so tempting to be angry with him, to put him in the blame category, to say if you could just do something completely different, you are the problem. God, you're the problem, you could solve it, could you just do it now? What we end up doing is banging our head against a wall over here. While I think God is here going, hey, I've got some really exciting things to do. Would you come with me here? When we see him as the solution, we actually see what he's doing. Now, I don't mean for one second that God does not care deeply about the problem, whatever it is. But when we're able to see him as the solution and not part of the problem, that's where things can change. And that's exactly what Hannah does. Um, Hannah, the real Hannah, my wife Hannah. Uh, she has a number of stories um, of really coming to the end of herself in prayer. I think she's spoken about it here. Uh, one was to do uh, with a visa, not getting a visa. One was to do uh, with a boy. Hey. And uh, what she said, she, she, she would say, I just gave up. I gave up. I couldn't fight God anymore on these things. And it was then that God met me, and I felt the freedom of these things fall away. Now, in both cases, her prayers were ultimately answered. (laughs) And we're here on a visa, not anymore. Green cards, yay. But this, ladies and gentlemen, is the way to peace in our own lives. Bow low. I don't mean this to sound anything other than heavy because it is. I'm not trying to make light of it. But bow low before the King of Kings. Give it up to Him and see Him lift you up. So to end, um, what about God's plan for peace for the whole world. In chapter 2, Hannah sings this song of praise to God after the birth of her child. And towards the end of this, we didn't have it read, but let me read a little bit to you. It says this, The bows of the mighty are broken. Sorry, the bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble gird on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of the, Lord, of the earth are the lords, and on them he has set the world. The Lord, his adversaries, will be shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. What Hannah has identified from her own life and then sees played out throughout the history of the world and the history of God's salvation is that there is always a transfer of power. It's what she's experienced, and it's what God wants the whole world to experience. It's not the powerful who are raised up. It's the lowly. She's the proof, and the whole of the Bible is the proof for us. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble are girded on strength. Those who are full will become hungry. The hungry will be fed. The barren will bear children. Those who have children will nevertheless be forlorn. Why? Because God it is who raises the poor from the dust and makes them sit with princes. This is the gospel. And the Lord is coming, she says, to give strength to his king and to exalt the power of his anointed. Anointed means Messiah. That's what that word means. And that's what Hannah, even without knowing it, is speaking about. She's speaking about Jesus the one who came with absolutely nothing, born with nothing, and spent his time with the sick and the lowly, the despised and the rejected, and preached the message of a kingdom where those who grieve will be comforted. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will see the kingdom of God. Those who are lowly and downcast will be lifted up Not because God thinks any of those things are great. They are clearly not great. They're bad things. But because he has come to raise them. He has come to lift you up. And Hannah's prayer is echoed by another prayer later on in the biblical story. It's a prayer prayed by another woman who becomes unexpectedly pregnant. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus, from Luke 1. God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. God has helped servant Israel in remembrance of God's mercy. According to the promise, God made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Mary sings not of another Messiah, but of the Messiah. And peace in the world comes when all of us are able to do what Hannah does, to give it up to him. It will take a lifetime. It's not always easy. But as we do it, we meet with the God who wants nothing more than to take us in his hands and lift us up into the heavens. For you to be everything that you were created to be. That's what's on offer. And he does it because he was able to do it himself. So what I suggest we do is we pray for a second. Then I think we should uh, sing a song of worship. And then I'd like to pray for people up here at the front, if you're on the ministry team, you're going to be needed. But just as you sit, let's pray. Can I ask you a personal question as you sit there? What is the thing that is most burdensome, that weighs so heavily? I know this subject is so painful for so many people and I don't want to make light of it and I don't want to acknowledge how difficult that is but I do know that God loves you and that his face is towards you that he is not immune to suffering he experienced it all And he comes close to those who grieve in Zion. His hand is one of comfort and love. And he comes to bring goodness out of the darkness. So Lord Jesus, I welcome your presence here in this room. I thank you that you are the true comforter and I pray that you would tender to people's hearts right now. Would you pour out your spirit of life into the lives of all those who are burdened and heavy, who are in distress and anger and pain? Would you come? In Jesus' name, amen. So I think we should sing this song. We've got like a few minutes and then we'll pray for people. You might not need to sing the words. You might just want to close your eyes. Maybe just open your hands and allow the Holy Spirit to meet you in whatever's going on for you. And then we'll pray for people. If you'd like to stand, you can.